welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on July 27th, 2019 at Provincetown Theatre in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was risk. I'm Vanessa Vardabedian. And I'm William Mullen. And we are the co-hosts of the Mosquito Story Slam. And on this episode, we are talking about risk. Wow, what a performance. We heard from first-time storyteller Dana tell a story of major miscommunication. Major (laughs) miscommunication. Uh, We also heard Jerry's story about taking his motorcycle out to get champagne in an ice storm. The things we do for love. And we also heard from a guy who was a janitor, worked himself up to the main salesman of his company, only to have yet another change happen. And many more. But first, I think we should start with your story, William. So when I was thinking about risk and major impacts in my life, um, there was a lot of risks about living in New York City. And... I was living there in the in the um, early aughts. Does everyone know what the aughts are? Right? The aughts. Not the early 2000s, the aughts. And I was, um, I had like, I was temping, which didn't make a lot of money. I was trying to perform and write and then make a little bit of money. And all my friends had real jobs. And it was the condo craze. Everyone was buying property. And this was before 2008, so it's like, Real estate, everyone, all my friends, and I was so jealous. And I shared a three-bedroom with two roommates. It didn't even have a living room. It was a kitchen and then three bedrooms. And one roommate was fine. She was gone enough. And then the other one, Denise, was crazy. I know. I just have to say the name Denise, and everyone's like, oh, it's a Denise. She's crazy. (laughs) I don't know what she did for a living, but she always wore high heels. She never took them off. I thought maybe they were part of her feet. And it was like when she went to the bathroom at 3 a.m., you heard. (laughs) She also cleared her throat all the time. It was this nervous habit, like every five minutes. And then she would say, excuse me. Even if she was by herself, excuse me. I'm like, you're excusing yourself. This is crazy. And at night, she would lock herself in her bedroom, and she was trying to learn Arabic. So through the bedroom door, she would turn the audio learning thing up all the way, and you would hear, and she's like, excuse me. And I was just like, this is crazy. This was right right after 9-11, and I was just like looking around the apartment, like, what's that? So I really wanted to get out of there. I wanted a place on my own, but I couldn't afford it. And um, I was like, I'm never gonna afford anything, but I kept looking. And one day I saw an ad in a newspaper for a New York City housing lottery. And they said, own a, a unit in a brand new condo building in Harlem, USA. Now I was in a very nice neighborhood in the Upper West Side. I'd never been to Harlem. But I was like, oh my God, look at these prices. This is amazing. So I, so I applied to it and I sent it away. And then I heard nothing. And I, and I just was like, oh, you know, it's a housing lottery. Probably 200,000 people applied for 15 units. So I just forgot about it. A year later, I get a letter. Would you like to purchase a condo in this new development in Harlem? I was like, oh my God, I've been selected. It was like Publishers Clearinghouse. I'm like, they're gonna come with balloons in my front door, it's amazing. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. And at the time, Phil was in Key West, and I called him. I'm like, I was chosen for the housing lottery. He's like, what What housing lottery? I'm like, I forgot to tell you I applied. And he's like, where, where? I'm like, in Harlem. He goes, William, have you ever been to Harlem? I was like, no, but it's in Harlem. Everyone says if you can buy real estate, buy it in, in, in Manhattan, because Harlem's in Manhattan. You can just buy it everywhere. They're not making new land. He was just like, William, you look like Frosty the Snowman. You're not really going to fit in there. I know how high strung you are. This is a major risk. (laughs) You can't buy a place in a neighborhood, one, you've never been to, and two, you really don't kind of fit into Harlem. And then at the time, still high crime. And at the time, gentrifiers were moving up, and they were displacing people. So 
the neighbors there, the lifelong Harlemites, were kind of mad at like Joe White guy being like, I just bought a condo. <laughs> yeah. And so Phil's just like, you really need to think about it. You need to think about it. I'm like, okay, and they gave you two weeks. They were like, you have two weeks to choose your unit, talk to the broker, finalize it, and go in the contract. And I love that, go in the contract. These were phrases my friends used, like closing, PMI, going in the contract. I felt like one of the gang. So I, I, um, Phil was like, this is risky, just think about it. And all I can think about were the floor plans that they sent you. And I was like, wow. And I'm like, I have to choose one of these. And I had to have a strategy. So my strategy was go for the largest unit you can. Get them. And so I found this three bedroom and I did, I looked at all of them. I'm like, this has the highest ceilings. It's a corner unit across from a park. I'm like, this is where I'm going in for it. So the day comes and I go in to meet the broker. And, I'm, and I was just like, and uh, all the technicalities are out of the way. And he's like, okay, which units are you available? I'm like, 5E, 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 the corner. And he's like, um, well, we really reserve those for families. And I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm planning to have a family which was news to Phil. Um, and the guy's like, guy's like, really? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, and I had to really think fast. I'm like, I'm going to adopt, I'm adopting. And he's like, well, are you adopting here in the US or? No, overseas, overseas. And he's like, where? And I was like, Ugh. I was like, uh, Vietnam, because I love Vietnam. <laughs> I was like, Vietnam, v Vietnamese twins. I, lo I love Asians, I love their babies. Ugh, they're scrunk, they're delicious, those babies are delicious. And so he was like, he was a little skeptical. He's like, really? I'm like, yes, the adoption's gonna be finalized right on the closing date, right on this date. So he allowed me to secure this three bedroom. So I went back and I was just like, Phil, oh my God, I'm gonna get this three bedroom. He's like, William, it's Harlem. We have a dog. You have to be comfortable walking this dog at night. I'm like, oh, all right. So he suggested I go up to Harlem in the middle of the night and walk the dog because I have to feel comfortable. But lucky for me, it was the middle of winter and it was like a cold snap and it was like minus 20 degrees. No one was around. I was like walking my dog. I'm like, this is comfortable. I feel secure and comfortable. And I go back and I'm like, Phil, I totally feel comfortable. We gotta do this. He was like, oh my God. And we just kept worrying about the risk. Like, oh my, we're gonna get mugged. People are gonna hate us, things like that. So we go and we actually close on this unit and we're so psyched. It is a beautiful apartment, everything that we imagined. And we actually go into design within reach and we like buy out the whole store. <laughs> we're like, and we make it really beautiful. We're so excited we have brunches every Sunday and invite our friends over. And we even had a guest room. No one in New York City has a guest room. And we're like, we would give tours and be like, this is our guest room. And our friends would be like, oh, fuck off, give me a mimosa. <laughs> like, guest room? Give me a break. So, um, and everything was wonderful. And then I was like very conscious about fitting into the community and just helping out. And I threw myself into the community. They didn't have a dog run there. I became involved in the Friends of St. Nicholas Park. If you're familiar with Manhattan, that's a beautiful historic park. I was just in awe of the history of the place and it was working out. I was befriending a lot of lifelong Harlemites and everything was fine. I was like, this is amazing. I felt so lucky and so lucky that like we lived on a very quiet street, which was odd because it was a main thoroughfare that cut through Manhattan. And then we found out that they were repairing a bridge for the last two years that connected Manhattan to the Bronx to basically I-95. <laughs> I'll never forget the day when they reopened the bridge. <laughs> I was sitting there, I thought a building had exploded in our neighborhood <laughs> or a riot was circling our building. I was like, they found out about me, I'm a fraud. I am Frosty the Snowman. And and it, the, the noise, there were fire trucks, police cars, and traffic, tractor trailers, tractor trailers that were carrying oil. It was, it was crazy, it was, the noise was off the charts. I had to turn on AC, it was in winter, and then I turned up the music. Even my dog was like, what is happening outside? I run downstairs to the janitor, and I was like, so what's going on? He was like, oh, rush hour? I was like, what? 
I'm like, this happens every day? This happens every, he goes, not, not every day. Sometimes it's worse. I <laughs> couldn't believe it. And not only during rush hour, at night, there were potholes in front of our um, building and tractor trailers would hit them. It would sound like an explosion. It was like July 4th every night. It ruined my sleep. I was like, I can't believe this. So we, then we went and we lived with it and we tried to fix it. We hired sound ins, in, um, uh, consultants and they came in, they're like, yeah, we can replace the windows, but this building is kind of shoddy <laughs> and, um, and the noise will just bleed through. It's not really gonna help. This construction is really bad. And I'm like, you get what you pay for. Oh my God. So then we decided we had to leave. And I'll never forget when I decided that is because there was a real fire in Harlem and the fire trucks were trying to get to it in front of our building, but it was complete gridlock traffic. And you know the fire trucks, they have that really loud horn and if they're in a hurry, they'll just go like, <coughs> like and it'll shake like everything. This guy was leaning on that horn. It was like, <coughs> my noise canceling headphones, I think I heard them be like, I give up. And I was like, <laughs> I was, and then I screamed at the fire trucks. I was having an argument with a red steel thing with the hoses. I was like, what? And we put it on the market. And we made sure that though the open house was just in the Sunday mornings when it was quiet. And we sold it. And the risk that we thought Harlem was going to bring, racism, crime, never materialized. What materialized was traffic noise, mostly caused by white commuters going home to their quiet, bucolic neighborhoods. <laughs> Thank you, that's my story. Put your hands together for Dana! I got divorced when I was in my late 20s, and for a little while after that, I just kind of had like random hookups here and there. Um, but then about a year later, I met this guy that was like the first guy that I really wanted to like date. He was cute and smart, and um, we hit it off right away. And um, one night we ended up back at my place. But then I had a problem, which is that I didn't know when to tell him that I am deaf. And when I say deaf, I mean deaf. Like I was born into a world of muffled noise. I've been wearing hearing aids since I was a year old. Um, it took like a lot of early intervention to get me to this point. <laughs> um, and my parents were always very like proactive and they always encouraged me to be open and honest and ask for help if I need it. But I had chosen to do the opposite, which is to just fake it and pretend like I don't have a problem. <laughs> and um, a lot of times I get away with it, but there is always a risk that I'm gonna be found out in some really embarrassing way. But um, it seems like it's worth the risk a lot of times because um, I can avoid some really awkward conversations. Because when people do know about me, they wanna um, <laughs> try to be helpful and ask a lot of questions and they'll be like, well, um, does it help if I talk louder? No. Well, do you use sign language? No. Well, do you read lips? Well, yes, but that would require me to look at you and pay attention, and I don't think what you're saying is worth that kind of effort. <laughs> uh, well, what do you do on the phone? I just guess. <laughs> um, so most of the time, I try to just do the best I can. Social situations can be hard, but actually, I found that in places like bars and clubs, I have an advantage because I can read lips and no one can hear. Um, <laughs> but um, the one situation that I've found where it gets really hard to keep up the act is when you're getting intimate with someone. And that is because hearing aids are not designed for close contact. Um, <laughs> so even there, you can imagine a lot of scenarios, but. Um, even just to lay your head on the pillow, if you lay your head on the pillow, it's gonna make feedback. Um, and besides that, like I'm used to sleeping in complete silence. So like I really can't sleep with them on. So if it ever gets to the point where I'm actually gonna go to sleep with someone, I feel like I have to warn them and just be like, you know, I'm not gonna be ignoring you, but I'm taking these things out. Like once I take these things out, there's no pillow talk, you know, like we're just going to sleep. Um, <laughs> 
so here I am, I'm with this guy, and I've missed like every opportunity that there was to kind of casually mention this. And then he fell asleep before me, so I didn't get a chance to give him like the bedtime speech. Um, and I really wanted to go to sleep. Um, so, you know, what could I do? I just took my hearing aids off and I went to sleep. And then the next morning, I woke up and it was so romantic. And the sun was like streaming in and I'm laying there in the arms of this guy and just kind of like appreciating how cute he is. And uh, then he wakes up and he said something, but I didn't hear what he said because I didn't have my hearing aids on, but I didn't want to ruin this perfect moment by explaining that to him. So I tried to just fake my way through it. And, um, you know, it seemed like he was asking a question, and I figured, what kind of question could someone possibly be asking in a moment like this? I figured it was something like, um, we should hang out again, right? Or, um, was that good for you, baby? You know, like something like that. Um, so I decided to just, you know, play my game and just like um, play it cool and keep it sexy, but like a little non-committal. And so I just went, I just kind of like nodded and murmured and was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right away, I knew that that was not the right answer. <laughs> this look of like horror washes over this guy's face. And he goes, what? And I go, wait, what? <laughs> um, and then we were just kind of like staring at each other in this moment of like confusion for a second until finally I go, all right, all right, hang on, hang on one second. And then I have to like fumble for my hearing aids and jam them in my ears right in front of him. And now the jig is up. So I was just kind of like, I'm sorry, <laughs> I totally didn't hear what you said before. What did you say? And he goes, I said, do you have any STDs? <laughs> no, 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 of course not. Like, I don't know why I said yes. Like, I just didn't hear what you said, but like, I'm clean, I swear. <laughs> but it was too late. <laughs> The moment had passed and, um, you know, I think he was never really able to recover from that initial shock. And actually, like, I never really understood why he couldn't just laugh it off. I mean, was he really worried that I gave him an STD or was he just freaked out that he accidentally fucked a deaf girl? Like, these are things I'll never know because I never saw him again. But um, it <laughs> doesn't really matter because he was kind of an asshole anyway. But I learned an important lesson that morning, which is um, better to be judged for the disability that you do have than the STDs that you don't have. <laughs> Angela McNerney. So... My risk started three years ago. I was a different person three years ago. I was uh, living in Albany, New York. I was a professional. I ran a business, a not-for-profit, that I started. And uh, I made six figures. I had manicures and pedicures almost weekly, regular massages. <laughs> I was pretty comfortable, but I was waking up every morning thinking, I can't believe I got to do this again. So I started to feel compelled to leave the business that I started. And it took me about six months, but I, I left. And I did feel compelled, I mean, really compelled, like the kind of thing that, you know, there's got to be something coming. So. And people said to me, you know, Angela, you're in your 50s. You're, this, is, this, is a, you're, this is a cash cow for you. This is your retirement. What, you know, what do you think? And I said, something's coming. I couldn't be feeling this much energy around leaving something unless something was coming. So I walked away from this very secure job, and nothing came. <laughs> For two years, for two years, I kept waiting for the phone to ring, 
or well, and it did. You know, people said, "Oh, would you like to work for me?" No, that's not it. And I just kept coming out here and staring at the ocean, waiting for the ocean to tell me what to do. And then I would drive home. <laughs> and still, nothing was coming. So about a year and a half ago, I was walking in a snowstorm in March. And I was almost out of money. I had gone through my savings. I had gone through my retirement. I had... I had started to go through credit cards, and no one knew. It was a secret. And I had, you know, I had four sons. You know, they were all older and stuff, but they, I still, I had, like, I was supposed to be this person, you know, this CEO person. So I'm walking in this snowstorm, and I'm listening to a podcast, and the guy says, if you think God is silent, Maybe you're asking the wrong question. And I stopped. And the snow is coming down. You know, I'm waiting for it. Really, I'm just waiting for a decent diagnosis. I'm just, I am so dark. It is so, I don't have a way out of this. If anybody knew what was happening, I would just totally, it would just totally blow me up. So the guy says, listen. If you think God is silent, you're asking the wrong question. I got five questions for you, but you better be ready for them because the answer is immediate. And I'm thinking, if God is silent. God is sitting there smoking a cigarette, with glasses down, looking at me. You know, I'm, I'm treading water. Sharks are everywhere. God is like, I'm not dealing with you until you let go of your fear. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is really where my head is at. So he says, the questions are this. How would you have me be? What would you have me do? Where would you have me go? Who would you have me talk to? And what would you have me say? And I was like, all right, I don't have anything else. I'll, I'll, I'll ask the questions. So all the way home, I'm asking these questions. I get home, and I look for my phone. And on my phone, there's a voice, me voice message from the best friend of one of my closest friends who had died nine years ago. I hadn't talked to him in nine years. And the voicemail said, Angela, this is Jordan. I just woke up, and I was in this place between sleep and wakefulness, and Tony appeared. Tony died nine years ago. Tony appeared and he said, Jordan, call Angela. And he goes, and I gotta tell you, I don't believe in that shit. I don't believe in hocus pocus. I don't believe in miracles. I got a dead son. I don't believe he's anywhere. All I know is I love that guy and I'm calling you. So now I start getting like electric about it. Going, what, what? something is really happening. So I don't really know what to do, and of course I don't ask for help. I'm very Irish like that. So I put my I put on this really warm coat that I never wear. It's this like this pink, puffy coat my ex-husband bought me. It, look, it looks like Petro Pe Pepto Bismol threw up, became a coat. It's just it's an ugly, ugly coat, but I never wear it. But it's warm, so I put it on and I go to put my phone inside the inside pocket and I can't get it in there. And I reach in and I pull out three pictures of Tony. Now, I'm a little freaked out. I'm Irish anyway, so I'm superstitious about all things. And, and I, 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 now I, I'm just kind of coming out of my skin. So I finally, I call this woman who's a mentor to me. And of course, she knows nothing about my headspace. And I tell her everything. I just, I told her everything. And she said, if you ran out of money today, what would you do? I said, I'd move to the Cape and I'd sell t-shirts. And she said, why don't you do that today? And I said, I, I live in a three bedroom house. I got a kid in the basement. I've got 57 years of my life. And, you know, I can't do something like that. And she said, I want you to go to the Cape this weekend 
and look for housing and look for jobs. And I said, but that's gonna cost like $300 for like a hotel. She said, 10 years from now, are you gonna tell me you didn't spend $300 to go do something you dream about? So last, a year ago, March, I came out here for a weekend and I talked to my friends, some of them are sitting here, and I said, can I do this? And Avis always says no. <laughs> but Karina said, you, you should have been coming out here a long time ago. And my other friend said, do it. I know somebody who's got housing. Somebody else said, I'll give you a job for a little while. We'll see what happens. I came home from that weekend, moving here. I took a risk, and I sell t-shirts on the wharf, and I tell people I protect whales for a living. <laughs> Sylvia, come to the stage. For a long time, I've called this the story of the phone cutter. I think I chose that title, uh, although I've never told this story in public, um, because I think in terms of fairy tales a lot. And there's a woodcutter in, I think, Little Red Riding Hood. But this is the story of the phone cutter. And as I was sitting sort of rehearsing this in my mind, not knowing if I'd be called upon tonight or not, I was trying to fix it in time in which decade it was. So I think it was in the decade when I was just leaving my 20s and had moved back to the East Coast. And I was living in a studio on the Red Line in Central Square. And what I remembered before getting the studio um, was that someone advised me not to buy a studio. And the reason was, they said, hey, you invite anyone in, and it's a huge room, and there's a bed in it. And believe me, you don't want that scenario. But I, I did. I, it was all I could afford. Was I mean, I didn't want that scenario, you know, <laughs> but it was all I could afford, and it had a fireplace. So I would, um, it actually worked out. I'll get to the phone cutter in a second, sort of worked out in a dieting kind of way because it was near Bread and Circus and near the Plow and Stars. And I don't drink, but I like to you know, purchase like little deli food and stuff like that. But I found out that if I didn't get ice cream or rice pudding, I could get one of those colored logs that you, know, you could just stick in the grate and then it would burn down. And I would feel so virtuous because it was the same amount of money almost as a pint of Haagen-Dazs, and I wasn't eating the Haagen-Dazs. I had a fireplace, and I had a bed, and, and alone. So at some point, um, I think I'd gone to a Christmas party, and at someone whom I trusted. So therefore, I trusted all of her friends, the mistake. And I wound up talking with someone who was doing the fine finish carpentry on her stairs. And I just loved that. I was like, oh my God, you, you, you made the lift, and then you made the this, and you made, that's incredible. I, th I could learn so, so much vocabulary from you, because I'm a writer. So I can't remember the one thing led to another, any of that, but remember he's a carpenter. So at some point, I wound up maybe, I had a few rules, dating rules, don't, you know, I couldn't, I knew I couldn't afford dinner out, but if somebody wanted to pay for my dinner out, that was okay. So, <laughs> like, rules like that. And it was, this is a long time ago. This is like, you know, easily decades ago for me. Um, and at some point, maybe we were close to where he lived, so somehow I wound up there. And I remember saying as it started getting later, I have to go home because I have a deadline tomorrow morning and I have to get actually a draft into my editor. So I have to go home. Remember I told you I'm a writer, so I have to go home because I have to wake up at five in the morning and I have to do at least two hours to finish this to get it off, you know, be able to package it and get it in the mail and mail it from work where I can mail things for free. But I have to do that because I have to, you know, I have to do that. And he was like, well, 
I'm really wound up still. And so it, 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 the, it, it, didn't, it, it, it didn't bode well, but at this point, this is a podcast, right? At this point, I remember making a decision that I still regret to this day, but it was, I thought it was a professional decision as a writer, and I thought, there's only one way I'm getting home. And I said, okay, so if you don't feel so tense anymore, then you'll give me a ride home? And he said, yes. And I thought, okay, I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to think of the rock at Gibraltar or the, the Queen or something like that. And, and that happened. Okay, so now we're about three days later. And he called to see if he could see me again. And I said, no, I don't want to see you again. And I hung up. And I thought, well, I took care of that. I'm, nope. You know, I'm almost, you know, approaching 30, and I know how to cut something off. <laughs> so sometime I would say, and it was like late morning. It was like 1130. It was before noon. And at some point, there was a knock on my door. And I lived in an apartment building um, near the Plow and the Stars in Cambridge on the top floor, on the fourth floor. So it was the fourth floor walk up. And I was sort of down the hall. And uh, there was this knock on the door. And he said, this is you know, Joe, and uh, I, you know, come in, and he was like swearing and all this stuff, and I said, oh no, no, I already told, I hung up on you, and I don't want to see you, and I'm not dating you, and I'm not going to open the door, and so he's, he was, you know, doing lots of stuff, pounding a lot, and so then the really weird and risky thing happened, and I can't tell you why, but to get him to stop pounding on the door, I said, um, I can't hear you anymore. <laughs> I'm going to take a shower now. And the shower was like right by the door he was popping on. And I turned the shower water on and I felt so smart because I had the shower water on. It was steaming everything up. And I had one of those white princess phones, sorry, with a long oh, with a long cord. So I knew that I could call on the phone and I and then I was so bored, and I didn't hear him for a long time, and I thought, well, I will take a shower. And I took the shower, and all I could think about was psycho, 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 psycho. And then I came out, and I turned the hair dryer on. I had that ready turn on, shower water off, hair dryer on. And then I called my mom on my phone, and I said, hi, mom, really loud. I said, hey, do you think dad could pick up some butter for me? If you remember the Haagen-Dazs thing, I, you know, she would be, you know, a pound of butter, I need butter. And this was before safe words, but I thought if I just kept saying that, and then um, the phone went dead. And he had cut the wires to the phone outside the apartment because it was, it was probably once maybe a townhouse or something, I don't know, kind of brick building, but so the wires of the phone lines were out in the hallway. And this was before cell phones or anything. So uh, to make a long story short, that's the story of the phone cutter. Uh, so you have to have more. Um, another installment to find out what happened. Um, he did continue to write me really creepy letters with red pen and like bullseyes and weird things saying, you know, you can't believe what I think of when I dream of you and stuff. And I ritually burned those letters at some later point. And nothing ever happened. But living alone again, whenever I forget in the morning, I go, oh my God, I didn't even lock the door last night because I live alone now. That's who I think of. This is a child's story, basically. So I grew up in Rome, Italy, in the suburbs of Rome, more specifically. And uh, it was a new suburb. Uh, it was built during uh, the Mussolini times. And, um, and there were these very nice little homes uh, that we were surrounded with uh, by. And, and I remember walking to elementary school every day. And on my way to elementary school, I would see this house on the side. And it was, every day I would go by and nothing would be happening in that house. And I would go by with my friends or check it out. And in the end, I decided that it was an abandoned house. And we were not exactly saints as kids. Um, and I was really sick and tired of sharing my bedroom with my sister. I wanted my own bedroom. And I decided that I would make that my house. <laughs> <laughs> and so 
I don't know where I learned what I learned, but um, at some point I managed to get a group of kids uh, to join me. I said, hey, you know, let, let's, let's ditch our houses, let's go to this house, we each get a bedroom, no problem, okay, so we'll do that. And I did manage to get like a handful of kids to, to follow me and, and, and I tried the door and I can't get in the door, so then I go to back and, and I see that there's this French door and I break in. I, I don't know where I learned how to break in, but I, I broke in. And so we're in this house and it's completely empty. There's nothing, no furniture, nothing, and, but we're like completely fascinated because it's the first time as kids and you know, I couldn't have been more than eight or nine that there's this whole house to us. You know, there are no parents, nobody telling us what to do. And so we get to run around, we're in the kitchen, uh, and we see the bathrooms, and we each pick a bedroom, and, and, and we're like, okay, we're, I'm gonna sleep on the floor. This is where I'm gonna be, basically. And so we sleep on the floor a little bit, I get sick of that, and so we, 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 we start running around a little bit more, and then I go downstairs by the entryway, and I open this closet, and, and down fall all these drawings. And there are these drawings of these, this beautiful woman, basically. Somebody had devoted time painting or drawing in charcoal, these, 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 this beautiful woman. There are so many different versions and aspects of her. And there was even her lying down naked, her, her just posing and stuff like that. Stunning, beautiful paintings. I remember just looking at this. I was there with some friends there. And, we're kind of looking at it, trying to make up stories about who it was. And in the process, we had figured out that it was an architect that owned the house beforehand. And so we made up stories as to what happened to the architect, who this woman was. And then all of a sudden, from upstairs in the kitchen, a huge crashing noise. Some kids had been playing in the, in the kitchen and water everywhere. And they had managed to break a pipe and there was just water going everywhere in the house. And I started seeing it come all the way down the stairs where I was and I knew we were in trouble. <laughs> At that point I was like, okay, I don't know how to fix a pipe. Um, uh, what do we do? And I was like, and I look at a friend of mine who's kind of geeky, he's, he's kind of technical, he's good with bikes. I'm like, can you fix a pipe? He's like, I can't fix my <laughs> And so we're like, okay, what do we do? And so we, we came out the way we, we broke in, basically, and we <laughs> filed into the street. We pretend like nothing's happening. But then this friend of mine breaks down because he sees his uncle drive by and says, we broke in this house. The pipes are broken. We're in trouble. What do we do? This guy figures out how to shut off the water, basically, and then proceeds to tell all our parents. <laughs> and I get identified as a ringleader, which I was. <laughs> and um, I, I, in, in those days, you know, as there was quite a bit of uh, parent interventionism and uh, I was, <laughs> I was definitely uh, secluded for a really long time after that and, and I've learned <laughs> that, you know, it's not a good trick to play, you know, it's like just, just leave other people's homes alone. But it was very touching because it was, it was this crazy experience of this, and, and the drawings to this day really, really touched me. It was, a, it was amazing to just get a sneak preview into somebody else's life that you had no, no idea about, but then break their house. <laughs> so that's it, that's my story. Please welcome to the stage, someone who's gonna lay it on the line, risk everything, Frank Campo. Frank. We're going back to the year 1977. I'm a junior in high school. I am at the Christopher Columbus Catholic High School for Boys. <laughs> and we are in chemistry class, and I'm also a janitor. My, my part-time job was a janitor at one of the department stores in downtown Boston. So anyway, going back to the school, I were in chemistry class and we're doing an exam, 
And my friend David's over here, my friend Dumdora. We used to call Tony Dumdora. He was over here, he knew nothing. So David was over here. David never got any question wrong. So I couldn't figure out what one of the questions was in chemistry. So I happened to look over at David's, David's uh, paper and all I saw was Mr. Shapiro like this. <laughs> and so afterwards, he took me aside and he said, Mr. Campo, my last name is Campo, and he said, Mr. Campo, do you really think that you can go into medicine or do you really think you should be a salesman? So uh, I said, I, 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 I want to be a doctor. I want to be in medicine. I want to own medicine. And he said, I don't think so. I don't think so. So anyway, so the job that I had in downtown Boston in the department store, I was the janitor and they liked me so they wanted me to go into the management position. So I said, okay, fine. So then for some reason, oh, then, we, then we go into our senior year in high school and we did a, a, um, a, a, a military aptitude test and it showed you what career you should be in. So we all got back our careers, and what you know, some people said engineers, school teachers, ba beep, ba 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 beep, ba. Mine came back as a podiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, What the hell's a podiatrist? And so a friend of mine said, Dumb Dora, it was Tony, he said, That's a doctor that takes care of kids. It's a kid doctor. <laughs> and then. My, my other friend David said, no, 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 no. That's a doctor that takes care of your private parts. <laughs> and I, so I went home and I said to my mom, I said, Ma, what, what, what the hell, what's a, what's a podiatrist? I told her what happened, it was a podiatrist. And she said, oh no. She goes, well, I go to a shrop and he cuts my toenails out, blah, blah, blah. I said, what the hell would I want to do that for? <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> time progresses. And I get out of high school, and in the place where I was a janitor that promoted me to now a salesman, they, they convinced me that I should go into a management program, so I did that, and I entered Northeastern University in the business department. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so it was, it was a business school, and I, I didn't like it. So then I decided to create business and hospital administration and blah, 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 blah. Well, business and medicine, and I went into hospital administration. I still didn't like it, but I was doing my co-ops. Co-ops are where you work six months and then you go to school six months. Work six months, go to school six months. So I did that at, at um, Tufts New England Medical Center, and I worked with all these student doctors and blah, 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 blah and they were a bunch of bozos. And I thought, I could do this better than these guys. So why don't I just get together, get my shit together, and go back into pre-med? And that's what I did. And so I basically back, went back into pre-med. And thank you. <laughs> and um, uh, so I did all that, and th it, it, we, we, there were so many different doctors at, oh, oh, this is it, uh, there was, I'm sorry, I just, I thought of the story today. But it's true, it's all true. Um, there were all these podiatry residents at Tufts Community Medical Center. So, and I asked them, I had no idea what they were, and they were the podiatry residents, and I, oh, uh, so I asked them what they did, and then, and then when I went back to school at Northeastern, I was going through these different medical conferences, and there were all these podiatrists talking. And I just thought, well, that's crazy, you know, and, so they told me what podiatry was all about, and I, I, I loved orthopedics, and they said, you know, this is a great offshoot of podiatry. And all I can think of is my old teacher, Mr. Shapiro, saying, Mr. Campo, I think you should be going into salesmanship and not medicine. And I didn't think I had what it took to go into medicine. So then I said, get your shit together, and you're gonna go into medicine, and that was it. So. 32 years later, I'm a podiatrist. <laughs> and, and, and no shit on this one. I, I, I ran into Dumb Dora the Tony 
about two years ago at Costco in Everett. <laughs> and he said, oh my God, Frank, what are you doing? And I said, I'm a podiatrist. And he said, I always knew you'd be good with kids. <laughs> Thank you. Put your hands together. Coming to the stage right now is Anu. Anu, yes. So this is uh, 30 years ago. I'm in India, getting ready to have an arranged marriage. So we have a choice, you know. Uh, first, the parents of the boy uh, see the photo of the parents of the girl. Uh, no, sorry. It's the photo of the girl. And they decide if the girl's good enough to see the boy. Um, so the photos worked out. Um, I saw the boy. He saw me. And uh, we went out for two days. And then we have to decide we're going to get married or not because you know you can't go out with the guy and you're unmarried. It's not a good reputation. So I decided, and he decided, and our parents and our grandparents decided it was a good match. We were going to get married. So I get married. I'm 22 years old, and I come to America. Um, I have moved to America, and I'm out here. I'm married for 20 years. And um, then my son, who is in 10th grade, decides he doesn't want to go to school anymore. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I've got two boys. And my husband says, you're the stay-at-home mom. Fix him. <laughs> oh my, uh, go to school? Uh, no, my son wants to take flying lessons instead. Okay, so I drive him to the airport. He uh, flies, and then he sleeps all day, and he's up all night. He's not getting fixed, okay? <laughs> then my in-laws decide that, you know, they're getting old, and, you know, in Indian tradition, the son looks after the parents and everything. He's the only son. Uh, the daughter's in New Jersey, too. So they decide to move in to our house. So I have a son who won't go to school, and then my in-laws have moved into the house. Now the agreement was that if it didn't work out with the in-laws living in our house, he'd move them out. So I'm like, uh, it's not working out. Can you get them to go somewhere else? And he's like, this is my mom. Uh, I can't say that she has to go. We gotta deal with this. At which point, I'm practically having a nervous breakdown. And so I go see a shrink. Something needs to get fixed out here. I can't fix my kid. I'm pretty much at the verge of not being able to fix myself. And this whole situation is not working out. And you know, the shrink says, why don't you go see a marriage counselor? I'm like, okay, that seems like a good idea. So I talk to my husband. I'm like, let's go see a marriage counselor. So we go there, you know, two times, three times. And then he tells me, this is not my problem. It's your problem. And you go see the marriage counselor. <laughs> At which point I'm like, OK. Uh, uh, and we actually started seeing the shrink together. And he told me the same thing. Your problem, go fix yourself. So I was like, OK. So I can't do the marriage counselor by myself. That's kind of like stupid. Uh, <laughs> I kept up with the shrink, but it's not working out. And at some point, I go like, it's not working out. And you know, maybe you know, we should call it quits and whatever. And um, he'd kind of come to the same decision. And I used to play soccer. And there was a woman who played soccer out there too. And she's an accountant, so you know, she I was like, you know, I, for the first 20 years of my life, my parents looked after me. For the next 20 years, my husband looked after me. And now it's like, uh, I don't know. The marriage is not working out. My kid's going down the toilet. I've got my in-laws staying in my house. And it's kind of like all crashing down. And I've never really dealt with finances or anything. I've been a stay-at-home mom. And so I was talking to this woman. And she's an accountant. And so she was helping me. 
and we're in the process of getting divorced, and then I'm getting separated, and then she's like, um, have you ever been with a woman? And I'm like, uh, no, conservative Indian woman, been married for 21 years. I'm like, and then I was like, hey, what the hell, you know? What else do I have to lose, right? Why the hell not? Okay, so I was like, okay. You know what, um, are you available? She's like, oh yeah, I've been checking you out for a while now. My <laughs> never was in my horizon. And you know, then I thought back to my childhood, my life in India, I was like, I never had a crush on anyone. My school friends used to call me Tommy. That's short for tomboy. I never liked the dresses. I always had the short hair. And so I was like, um, maybe, you know, so I did, and I do, and <laughs> that's my partner over there. <laughs> okay, let's welcome to the stage Grace. Grace. I grew up in Portugal in an orphanage, and it was summertime, and um, we wanted to go out dancing with boys. Uh, the problem is we were not allowed. So four of the girls from the age of 13 to 16, we decided we had to figure out a way for this year for us to go dancing, which was probably about walking distance about an hour. But we decided it was too risky for the four of us to do it because uh, the nuns didn't particularly like us. So we needed to figure out more girls because we decided if it was more girls, we are most likely not to get kicked out of the orphanage. So the more girls we had, the safer it was. And so also we needed to pick out the girls that the nuns really liked, that we knew they were not gonna kick them out at all. And after a few days of working on this system, we figured out we got about nine or 10 of them. Uh, of them. So there were nine or 10 of us. And uh, the city where I grew up, it was a small city. The orphanage was very big building. And we also had somewhat of a farm. And so we would, get out from the, the backyard, which was monstrous, and then we would go down and walk through the, um, the yard, uh, uh, the farm, this was like a bit of a farm, and then we'd go up the wall and go onto the street, and we'd meet the boys there, there were four of them. And so we felt pretty safe. There was nine of us, um, there were four of them, and we had a blast. <laughs> And so we went dancing, and after the dances were over, we came back to the city, and we got in front of the steps of the library, and we drunk, and we got, we, the boys bought wine with them, and we got, some of us got drunk, and by the time we got back to the orphanage, it was about two o'clock in the morning. Now, we're not used to that. We used to go to bed at 9.30 at night, and the following morning, we had to get up to go to school. And so this was a problem because everybody's, oh my God, we're tired, some of us are drunk, but we went to school and some of them actually fell asleep. And, um, but the following day, we decided, are we going again? Are we going again? Of course we are, we are going again. <laughs> so we told the boys, wait again, out on the street in the same day. But now there was uh, some of the girls, but now there were less girls because some of them were tired and some of them said, you know, what if we get caught? The nuns get kicked us out. And we said, but there's so many of us. They're not gonna kick out any of us. And so, but there were some girls, less of us, and, but we went anyways, and we had fun again, and some of us got drunk again, and it was great, and we did this for three days. After the three days, we were safe. We didn't get caught, and it was great. And then two days later, the nun comes to me and said, pack your bags, you're out of the orphanage. I don't remember what happened after that. I knew my sister got kicked out also, and three other girls got kicked out, but not the other ones. And 
Uh, the only thing I remember was that we got to the door and the nun is there to make sure that we get out. And she said to me, uh, show me the bottom of your shoes. And I thought, what a bizarre question to ask. And they lift up my shoe and she said, they're clean. And I thought, how the hell does that make sense? And um, we got, we left the orphanage. Um, one of them ended up in Brazil, I ended up in the United States, one ended up in Africa, two of them in Lisbon. And about 20 years go by. And during these 20 years, I lost contact with most of them. And I had, I held this grudge that, why, why didn't the other girls get kicked out too? Why is it just us? And um, about 20 some odd years go by and I decide to find most of these girls. I always had a dream in connecting with them. And I did. And I went back to Lisbon, I went back to Portugal. And in fact, I even got together with some of the nuns. And um, talking to the nuns and uh, we had a dinner together, the nuns and the girls. And I said, you know, I don't understand why is it that some of the girls got kicked out and some of the girls were not allowed. I mean, we all went dancing and she said, dancing? That's not why I got kicked out. And I said, it wasn't. She said, do you remember what I asked you about your shoes? And I said, my God, she remembers. That means this has been bothering her for as long as it's been bothering me. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I remember that. She said, the reason I asked you to look at the bottom of your shoes was because we realized later was somebody destroyed the strawberry patch and we thought it was you and the other four girls. So when you lift up your shoe, I realized you were innocent. You didn't do anything. And I said, I was at the door when you asked that. She said, yeah, but by then, everything was all settled. And so it was a risk we took. In the end, things worked out because things do. But that was it. <laughs> Put your hands together for our next storyteller. Ooh, mysterious, they're just initials. A.G., come to the stage. When you're in your 20s, um, it's really all about looking for risk of some sort, and it's 1998, and we decide we're gonna go to the gay games in Amsterdam. So you can imagine the risks and the adventure that we're anticipating. Um, and we have no money, of course. So who remembers the tickets where you'd buy and you'd be like, I'll go somewhere between these dates and you can fly me to somewhere that's anywhere in the general vicinity of where I'm going? Do you remember those? So yeah, so, so we bought one of those tickets and we landed in Luxembourg. It's, it's, yeah, so it took us, you know, a Homeric journey to go from Luxembourg to Amsterdam. We get there, we haven't slept in days, and there's planes and there's trains and automobiles and begging. And so we get to Amsterdam, and of course, what's the first thing you want to do when you get to Amsterdam? Get stoned, right. <laughs> and we're staying in the most disgusting hostel nearest the train station in Amsterdam. So we decide to go get stoned. So. We get to this place and we and there's like a menu. And you know, we're used to US dirt weed, which you know, you get like a little buzz, but there's descriptions, uh, you know, white widow and it'll take you on a train ride and you know, so we pick something and we don't know how to roll. So they they bring us an aqua lung that's like that. And we're getting ready to smoke, and this man comes over, he's a little man, and he comes over and he's like, says something in a language we don't understand, and he puts something into where our pot is. So we're like, oh, great, okay. <laughs> and we smoke it, we don't know what it is. And then it's clear, again, in a language we don't understand, that he wants us to come home with him now, because he's done something for us. And we're like, whatever, little man. We're big lesbians from Massachusetts. We're mass holes, fuck you. We're leaving. So we, you know, 
we run out. And we go on an adventure through Amsterdam and we discover the meaning of techno. And, you know, there's people in cages and dancing and fire and, you know, bars and things. And three days have passed and we still haven't slept. And so we manage to make a circle around Amsterdam. We end up in a bakery next to the place where the little man was. And he sees us go into the bakery. And now he has two very large men with him. And they're looking at us like, remember, you're coming home with us now. And we're like, oh shit, we're kind of screwed. And we're now in this bakery. And the woman is behind the thing. And she's looking at us. And she's like, you're screwed. He's taking you home with him. And so now we're like, OK, it's like our last meal. And we're still stoned. So of course, we're going to order like a lot of bakery items. And, but it's like our last meal. And so we're like, God, what do we do? You know, The lights have now dimmed. And the lights are on us. And the men are standing outside. And we're ready for the end of our lives. And then this giant pack of honking soccer lesbians comes into <laughs> the bakery. And they're like, don't worry, girls. We saw the whole thing. <laughs> and they surround us. And they escort us past the men who are like, <laughs> and, and just for you know, sake of safety, we noted where we were and never went back to the bakery. Right. Last to the stage is Jerry. This happened on uh, December 30th, uh, 2017, going into New Year's of 2018. I'm living west of Philadelphia uh, in a little town. And I would, for the last two months, I'd just been working on screenplays, so I'm flat broke. I'm, I don't have any money. Uh, and uh, I, on Christmas was a Monday. So December 30th was a Saturday. Christmas, New Year's Eve is a Sunday. New Year's Day is a Monday. The next business day is Tuesday. So I send in the screenplay. Um, and I had an advance, so I get the rest. I, I send in the screenplay on Christmas. I'm like, OK, waiting for this check. I don't know, it may take two weeks. I may not get this thing till next year. So my girlfriend's in from New York. And so she comes down. I'm like, oh my god, you're here for New Year's Eve. I don't have any money. So anyway, so we're there. And um, on Saturday, we wake up, and it's the first snow in Philadelphia. It snowed like two inches. Oh my god, it snowed like two inches. It only looks pretty. I said, let me just take a gamble and go down to my post office box and see if this check showed up. Now, my car's out front, but it has a flat tire. It's had a flat tire for a month. I haven't been able to fix it. Just forget it. I don't care. I'm fine. I'm just sitting here writing anyway. So anyway, I go to the mailbox. Lo and behold, the check's here. I was like, my god, this check's here. I live outside of Philly. My bank is in New Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's 40 miles away. I've got to go across to New Jersey to get to my bank, and I can't cash this thing anywhere else. So it's New Year's, so I'm calling around, trying to get a car. Anybody around? Anybody around? Nobody's around. Nobody's around. I, can't, I don't have any money to pay for a cab. I don't have any more credit cards, so I can't get there any other kind of way. So I call my ex-wife. She lived up the street. She's got a few cars. Hey. Oh my God, thank God, where are you? I'm trying to get to uh, Terry Hill, cash this check. He's like, oh no, I'm in Florida, we're vacationing. Oh, and you don't want to take your motorcycle because it snowed. I ain't got a motorcycle. I'm cool. I hung up right away. I'm like, I'll take my motorcycle. It's a 1975 BMW, it's out back with a tarp on it, with snow on it. So I go, all right, and my girlfriend says, oh darling, please don't go, I think it's unsafe. And so it snowed out there. It's like, look, I'm going to be fine, don't worry about it. I gear up, I got my Gore-Tex, everything on, totally padded out, leather jacket, or like jacket, helmet, full face. My gloves were snowball throwing gloves. They weren't motorcycle gloves. That was the only thing. So I go outside and I take the snow off the tarp, turn the bike over, or like, trying to turn the bike over. I said, oh, I'm gonna kill this battery before this thing even starts up. I'll jump start it and I'll take it over to the street, snow-covered street, and I'm on a hill. If this thing doesn't start up when I'm on the bottom of the hill, I'm going to have a problem pushing this thing back up to my apartment building. It starts. So I sit there, OK, it's going. OK, I'm going to drive it. If I get past Penn, if it's too treacherous, I'll just turn back. So I get on the bike, and I'm going. 
And it's okay. People look at me like, oh, is this guy really on a motorcycle? I'm like, yes, I am. So I go, I'm like, well, I'm cool. Let me go. So I go, go past Penn, go through Center City, go over Ben Franklin Bridge, go to the bank. They cash their check. I say, cool. I get all the cash. I leave. I'm like, oh, I'm in Jersey. May I take advantage of the cheap liquor, beer, liquor here? So I buy two bottles of champagne, put that inside pouch, handle my favorite scotch, put that in the other pouch. Great. I'm going back across the bridge, go through Center City. I go past Penn, I'm a mile and a half away from my house. And I'm driving in their strata tracks. There's still snow on the road. The last thing I remember, I saw this car kind of go in my lane a little bit up ahead. Last thing I remember, hitting the back brake. The next thing I remember, I'm sliding like Superman <laughs> in the same direction on my stomach like this. And I stop and I go, wait, what happened? I get up, I'm fine. The gloves have shredded, but my hands were perfect. The gloves are gone, but my hands were perfect. And here's my round head like going down right down the road. And some woman's running after you, and people come, oh my God, we gotta call 911. We gotta call the police, are you okay? I'm like, no, 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 just help me up. Oh, just help me get my bike up. So I pick the bike up. Let's move it over here, move it over there. How's the booze? I look in the bags, the booze was perfect. I'm like, I'm good. All right, so I go, okay, let's just move it over here. There's a little station where I move the bike over there, take these pouches, I get the pouches, and I go over to uh, take a cab and get home. And I walk in and I just say this right away. I say, look, do you see me? I'm, I'm healthy, look, I got booze, got money, I'm going out to dinner tonight. I'm gonna tell you something, but I don't wanna hear a word about it. <laughs> I wreck my bike. To this day, she's never said a word. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. Bye.